Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Construction projects dig up a lot of dirt and rock, but what happens when those excavators and bulldozers uncover ancient artifacts? An archaeologist will join us later to talk about a remarkable find in Norwalk, Connecticut. What will happen to these artifacts? We'll find out coming up. We'll also check in on HIV trends in our nation. According to the CDC, fewer people each year are being diagnosed with HIV, but the disease still disproportionately affects communities of color, especially African-American men. Coming up, we'll hear from a Yukon researcher who's been studying the disparities, and we'll talk with a community outreach worker about what's being done to curb the infection rate. But first, hundreds of people, many of them young people, rallied in Newtown on Sunday. It's a lot of pain, but I also know, I also know it's a lot of love in this crowd. I also know it's a lot of support in this crowd. I also know it's family in this crowd. That's high school student Alex King, who came from Chicago for the March for Our Lives rally in Newtown. It was the last stop of a national 50 cities bus tour. It was organized by the students of Parkland High School in Florida, where 17 people were killed in a mass shooting in February. The activists have been registering young people to vote in time for midterm elections, while also urging legislative action to prevent gun violence. Now, did you attend March for Our Lives? You can join our conversation, the number 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Connecticut Public Radio reporter Vanessa De La Torre covered the rally. She's with me now in studio. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Lucy. So tell us a little bit more about the people who attended. I understand there was a group from Hartford that went to this rally in Newtown. Who were they? Absolutely. There was a young group, um, about 27 kids who came from Hartford, actually teenagers, and one of them is here in studio with us today. Um, They're a youth leadership academy from the nonprofit Hartford Communities That Care. Um, Over the past year or so, they've been meeting up every Saturday discussing possible solutions to gun violence. So they were, you know, really interested in coming, and actually they had a Um, personal experience. um, Usually um, many of them have had personal experiences with gun violence. Either they've heard gunshots growing up in their neighborhoods or they've um, known people personally affected by gun violence. And one of the students who went to Newtown, he was actually shot um, and survived um, about 10 years ago at the West Indian Day Parade in Hartford. He was seven years old. So these students have a personal um, connection. Connection, absolutely. And so they really wanted to go to Newtown, and they had an advocate for them who was really pushing for them to go. I understand it was a Sandy Hook parent. Tell us more. Right. Nelba Marquez Green, um, her daughter, Anna Grace, uh, was six years old when she died at Sandy Hook. And Nelba has a pretty unique perspective on how race and geography play a role in how our society responds to victims of gun violence. Um, Nelba is Puerto Rican. Her husband is black. And Anna was the only black and brown child to die at Newtown. So, and also her family is originally from Hartford. So she saw the massive outpouring after Newtown, and she's noticed that that, that type of uh, support has not uh, been bestowed to victims of gun violence in the urban cities like Hartford. 
Um, you spoke with her, and uh, I understand she has spoken to other moms who've been impacted by gun violence. We have a clip from your interview. This is uh, Nelba talking about, um, after speaking to these other moms, something that she notices that's different in the conversation. Being with the women and learning with them, it really humbled me on how um, little justice there is and how we respond to gun violence and how much more work we need to do, right? Because we all had an 8 by 10 picture of our children, but not all of us had received the same love and compassion that we had in Newtown. And that really impacted me. So, Vanessa, she's talking again about when these mass shootings happen in our country, there is an outpouring of support um, for uh, people who have been become victims of this uh, terrible tragedy in too many communities now in our country. But gun violence happens every day, and the people that are impacted aren't often the ones that are getting the support? Absolutely. For example, last year in Hartford, there were about 30 homicides. Um, and she's really speaking to an inequity, not just in the compassion but also the resources given to some of these families who are struggling. This is where we live. Again, we're talking about the March for Our Lives rally in Newtown, Connecticut, that happened on Sunday. Uh, Connecticut Public Radio reporter Vanessa De La Torre is here with me. She covered the event. She spoke with parents and students who've been affected by gun violence. One of uh, the youth participants from Hartford who went to the rally is also in studio with us. I want to welcome uh, 14-year-old Joshua Fee. He's an incoming sophomore at Classical Magnet School in Hartford. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I understand uh, you were part of uh, this group that went uh, the uh, Youth Leadership Academy, the Hartford Communities That Cares Youth Leadership Academy, um, and you actually spoke at the, the Newtown event. What did you tell the crowd? Basically, we were talking about um, not only mass shootings, but we were talking about urban gun violence because we have to bring a light to that. Miss um, Nelba, she was actually confused on why they were having the rally in Newtown when it happened in Hartford almost every day. So she um, she really got us to where we were. She um, When they called her, she got us um, the bus, and she told them if um, she asked them if there was any room for um, panelists or um, speakers. And what did you tell them? Uh, you told them about why you were there. What did you tell them? We told them um, that we're not going anywhere. That um, we are staying. We're staying here, basically. That um, no matter what happens, we're still going to fight for what we believe in. Um, and we gave our recommendations to the crowd. Actually, um, after we had spoke, um, Senator um, Chris Murphy, he had came up to us and we were talking. And um, we had actually handed him our recommendations. So it was kind of like a direct, instead of, it was a kind of direct handoff instead of giving it to his staff and him not getting it until it's too late. So he was like, my staff probably has these, but let me take these. So I was kind of like, wow, we have, our recommendations got to Chris Murphy. <laughs> Tell us more about um, some of the recommendations that you and your other peers came up with. Again, you want adults to listen to your concerns and to uh, see change in your communities. Tell us more about what you want to see change. Some of the recommendations were to um, expand gun buyback efforts and to enact gun reforms, um, drawing upon data and common sense. Um, another one was end mass incarceration because when you put a bunch of people into jail, you're taking away potential taxpayers and you're taking away that family's income. So that second parent now has to step up to the plate and cover. They were relying on that other income to survive and thrive in life. And so now that youth sees their parent um, struggling, 
So they feel like I have to help them. So they either drop out of school or get money the fast way, which is not always good mm-hmm. because they shouldn't be have they shouldn't have to focus on oh I have to make the rent, I have to make the rent. They should focus on school. Uh, we heard Vanessa talk about um, the gun violence that we see here, even in the capital city of Connecticut in Hartford. Um, what would you want to see help your peers in your communities, in your schools? What can school officials do to help you and your uh, fellow students if they've experienced trauma? I think that um, school officials, what they can do is realize. Realize that there's something wrong, that nobody just acts out for no reason, that there is something beneath the surface. And if you get beneath that surface, then maybe you can see a different side of that person and see deeper inside of that person because not everybody is who they act like. Um, some people, they act really mad and mean or they look that they just look that way and that could just be them, but they're really nice and sweet people. People just have to look beyond their wall and get deep and beneath once they realize who that person really is. Uh, Joshua Fee, again, is a 14-year-old student at Hartford's Classical Magnet School, a member of Hartford Communities That Care's Youth Leadership Academy, uh, one of many uh, young people that attended the March for Our Lives rally in Newtown on Sunday. Uh, Vanessa, I asked uh, Joshua a little bit about what kind of support he'd like to see his student, fellow students receive in school, um, some of them who may have experienced trauma, who have been impacted by gun violence. You've covered the Hartford schools um, for um, several years. What kind of resources are there for them? Well, there are social workers and there are guidance counselors, but often when I speak to educators and parents and students, they find that, you know, people are stretched too thin. There are not enough resources. Um, And certainly there's a lot of need in cities like Hartford. Um, You spoke about the trauma, uh, victims of gun violence, not just the victims themselves, but also people who see it, who feel it, who hear it in their neighborhoods. And one thing I wanted to add is that when I saw the students from Hartford go to Newtown, there was a sense of unity uh, between all the groups, uh, urban and suburban. And they, a lot of the students I spoke to after the rally said they had a sense of hope um, coming out of that. Joshua, is that how you felt? Yes, they were, um, most people who came up to um, me and our group, they were like, we're so happy Hartford came. Um, they were really, as we walked in, everybody was clapping their hands and cheering and stuff like that. And it kind of felt like unity. And when we got there, people were saying, welcome to Newtown. Hope you have a fun time. It was just... It was a sense of peace, even though it was um, a rally that we shouldn't have to do. This is where we live. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Jessica's calling from Hamden. Jessica, go ahead. Hi. I'm just uh, calling in because I went on Sunday. Um, I'm a former educator, a high school educator, and it was a fabulous experience for me because as a teacher, I was always the one who was the one helping the students find the knowledge or imparting my knowledge onto them. And it was one of the very first times where I felt like the roles were completely reversed and it was beautiful. It was exactly how um, things should be running. And I spoke to another educator who's still currently teaching, so I'm not anymore. Um, And she said that the shift that she has seen in terms of the desire to know more and to be educated about the system and how things work from her students uh, is incredible. So I just wanted to throw that out as as a former educator. 
Thank you, Jessica, uh, for your call. Uh, Joshua, we've been seeing students around the country, um, often the catalyst of Parkland um, after that uh, awful shooting uh, in February, where they have become uh, very vocal. They've become activists looking for ways to combat gun violence in this country. But I wanted to ask you, when you go to school, do you feel safe? When I go to school, I feel safe, but I do I don't know why. It's like a just-in-case. Let me figure out if there's some type of way to get out. Go ahead. And I don't feel like we should have to do that. Um, So it's kind of like I do feel safe, but it's like just-in-case. Let me think more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been seeing uh, since Newtown, especially Vanessa, uh, more and more uh, drills in public schools. It's become uh, commonplace uh, to have um, mass shooting drills, and that's unfortunate. Right. Um, I was actually talking to a teacher somewhat recently. Um, this was earlier in the year when the school was still in session. And, uh, so, you know, sometimes they have drills and they don't specifically tell the teachers and students at the time that it's a drill. Um, and this teacher was saying that they were having a what turned out to be a drill, but, you know, the kids were locked in their classrooms and they were in tears, terrified, because they thought that this might be a school shooting. So this is still very much a big issue for students and teachers right now. Uh, before we uh, head to break, I did want to ask you, uh, Joshua, um, on Friday, we're going to have Hartford Police Chief David Rosado in our studios. And again, you are a young person uh, living in Hartford. Um, so often uh, people in the suburbs, when they hear about uh, a youth uh, from the cities, they're thinking about uh, the kids that um, have uh, you know, been acquainted with the juvenile justice system or have been arrested for um, any number of, of reasons. But there's also a lot of prevention that can be done in communities to help uh, children where they're not going to be, they're not ever going to see the inside of a prison or a jail. What would you want to tell Hartford Police Chief David Rosado of ways the police department can help um, improve relations within your community? They have to um, build relations. Like you said, you can't expect change without being the change. So with that, I would say to him, I would say help the community because if you build that police, um, police to citizen, relationship then you then you improve the relationship between all police and all citizens because if you think about it they people see one person getting hurt by police and they don't like police anymore so if you're that one person that can step up to the plate and say that's not right maybe you should stop maybe you should do it a different way or approach them a different way maybe you can be that person that can stand up and rise above all the ignorance and the negativity and be that positive light Joshua Fee, again, is a 14-year-old student at Hartford's Classical Magnet School, member of Hartford Communities That Cares Youth Leadership Academy. Joshua, thank you so much for coming in today. You're a rock star. Thank you. <laughs> also want to thank uh, Vanessa Della Torre, reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. As always, thank you, Vanessa, for coming on. Thanks, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to hear more about racial disparities among HIV infection rates. How should they be addressed in communities of color? We're going to find out after the break. You can join us, too. The number 860 Two seven five seven two six six. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. According to a report by the Connecticut Mirror, black males in Connecticut are nine times as likely as white males to be diagnosed with HIV. That's according to data in 2016. And Hispanic males are more than four times as likely as whites to be diagnosed. Why do these racial disparities persist when HIV infection rates have been decreasing among other populations nationwide? For more on this, we're joined on the phone by Dr. Cato Lawrenson, a Dusen Distinguished Professor of Orthopedics surgery at UConn. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities and lead author on a recent paper about racial disparities in HIV. Dr. Lorenzen, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. This is uh, Dr. Lorenzen. Thank you. Lorenzen. Sorry for that. Um, I, tell us a little bit about um, what you've studied in recent years. I understand you looked at racial disparities and in HIV infection in, in 2008. What did you find back then? Well, we found in 2008 that there was a really uh, uh, extremely high numbers of, uh, in terms of the incidence of HIV in the uh, in the in the uh, African American community, and um, we created a call to action at that point where we, you know, we talked about the fact that this really is something that is as an ep- is really of epidemic proportions and really needs to be addressed. Um, and um, in our new paper uh, that just came out, uh, we now we then compared. Where we were in um, over the decade uh, to look at uh, you know which direction we're going and where the improvements are really not happening in the, in the black community. There's there are decreases in the overall um, overall and certainly in the white community, but those those changes and that that those improvements are really not occurring in the black community. When we drill down uh, further, who um, in the black community is contracting HIV? Well, the the majority uh, in the black community are men who have sex with men, and um, if we uh, uh, if we first of all just to understand, almost half the you know new cases of HIV infection in America now are among uh, among blacks in America, uh, and uh, which is uh, again in terms of a population that's only twelve percent of the of the population. This is um, uh, it's, it's very very high. And then disproportionately among in that in in that group, uh, uh, the the number one group uh, among that group is uh, are, are men who have sex with men, uh, which um, which uh, accounts for uh, uh, for over half. Uh, I've mentioned earlier that, uh, according to the CDC and others, we're seeing uh, the infection rates for HIV uh, decreasing uh, because of prevention uh, efforts and treatment. Uh, but when you look at this issue, um, you know, what are some reasons why uh, African Americans, Hispanics, especially men, are not getting um, this information? And we're not seeing uh, the numbers go down. Well, well it's, it's it's multifaceted, and I think that. Um, uh, we can look at a number of different uh, areas. First of all, um, if we if we look at the in terms of the general population, uh, about one in every seven individuals who are uh, HIV positive uh, don't know they're HIV positive. You know, don't know that they're HIV, that they're infected with the HIV virus. Um, but if you drill down again in terms of white versus black. Um, uh, the, the percentages are, are, are higher. About 88 percent of, uh, of black of whites know, uh, know their you know, know their status, but only 82 to 83 percent of those that are infected with the HIV virus know their know their status when they're black. So that means that there's a larger percentage of individuals who are black who don't know their who are HIV positive and don't know their status. 
And then um, we, for those individuals who are HIV positive, we know that uh, treatment is very, very important. Uh, and treatment's important because of, you know, not only for, for uh, living a longer and healthier life, but we know that with the, with the cocktail cascade that's now available, um, uh, it, that, 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 that the treatment can be the prevention because of the, the low to undetectable levels of HIV in the blood if, uh, if adequate treatment takes place, will take place. If we look at across the board, the percentage is about 50% of those individuals who are HIV positive um, are under treatment and under uh, adequate treatment. But if one examines the uh, black versus white population, uh, those numbers are very different, where um, a higher, much higher percentage of whites um, who are HIV positive have uh, adequate treatment, a lower percentage of blacks who have, uh, who have or HIV positive who are, uh, have adequate treatment. Now, this becomes important because if one looks at the numbers of people, uh, looks at, if one looks at you know, new infections in terms of HIV, nine out of ten new infections occur from people who either don't know their status or know their status but are not adequately protected. And so you can, one can see that because in, in both cases there's a, a disproportionate, there's a, a large number, there are large numbers of blacks who are either don't know their status or they know their status and adequately protected, that, that creates that, that, that risk group that, um, that then uh, has a, uh, proceeds on with in terms, of, in terms of higher numbers. So that's in terms of the, that's in terms of the, the numbers on, on the basis of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of HIV status and, and, and uh, knowing one's HIV status and, and having adequate protection. But we know that other areas such as incarceration, poverty, um, the stigmatization that takes place in terms of uh, still in our black community with them in terms of um, uh, men having sex with men, um, uh, these are all part of the also contribute in terms of the uh, the the, the uh, what we see as really a rise in the uh, numbers of uh, men who have uh, black men who have sex with men in terms of HIV um, overall. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Dr. Cato Lorenzen, Dusen Distinguished Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at UConn. He's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities, lead author on a recent paper about racial disparities in HIV. We're looking about why they still persist. Again, he's on the phone with us. And, and joining us now in studio is Giovanni Roland, caseworker for Community Renewal Team, or CRT, in Hartford. Giovanni, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so when we look, we're hearing about these, dis- this, these disparities that persist. Um, when you're out in the community uh, working with different populations, tell us why uh, prevention and awareness is not working among uh, communities of color. Uh, well, I think it's because of the cultural competency, how, how culturally diverse we are. Um, we are luckily to be very diverse. In our, we are a small team, but we're very diverse. Um, so, for example, we have a Latina woman who is heterosexual. We have a transgender female. Um, and then we have me. Um, we have an open position that we're looking for because ideally we would have an African-American male and we would be fully diverse as much as we can. Um, but we go to clubs and normally the clubs that are more open to have us there are Latin clubs. So it's very easy for us to approach Latin people because it, I guess they relate to us in the culture. The manager, the owner of the bar relates to us uh, more, more better. 
So that's why we go to these places. We also go to South Park Green, uh, South Park in in Hartford, and we approach a lot of African Americans there. It's great. Um, we go on non-traditional hours, so it's very easy for us to approach these people. And because we have three different type of staff, if you don't feel comfortable with just one person, you might be comfortable with a female, or you might be comfortable with a transgender, you might be comfortable with a male. So it's very easy for us to say, hi, we're here. How are you? This is what we're doing today. Would you like to get tested? Talk about the barriers to accessing care that that, uh, many of your clients are experiencing. A lot of it is education, transportation, um, and then being able to get, well, the main one I would say is education. So what we do is when we go to the community, we go on non-traditional hours. Sometimes it's easy to find people from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., but what happens with the people who are out in the streets after 5 p.m.? How do you approach those people? And that's what we're doing differently. Um, so that's why I think there's such a barrier. For example, PrEP. A lot of people don't know about PrEP. So let's talk about PrEP. We've had uh, pre- I've done shows before about PrEP, but explain to our listeners what it is and how it can prevent HIV. So PrEP is a medication that you take once daily, and it can prevent you from contracting HIV until 97%. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people don't know about PrEP. And you go to the clubs and you think that everybody in the LGBT club, because that's where a lot of promotion of PrEP is being on, on LGBT population. But you go to an LGBT club and you talk about PrEP, and a lot of people don't know about PrEP. They don't even know what it is. They've heard about it, but then Internet is out there. And you go into Internet and there's so many information that's right and that it's wrong. So how do you change people's mind and giving them the right information about the medication? Tell us the inf- misinformation that's out there. How do you combat that? And also the stigma surrounding uh, people who may take PrEP. So a lot of people talk about, oh, it's not effective, it's not effective, it's not effective. Um, a lot of people talk about, hey, well, in the study, eight people came out positive and they were on PrEP. A lot of people talk about, well, for substance use, for substance use, it's not as um, efficient as it is for anal sex or just sex. Um, a lot of people talk about, well, how about the side effects? It's, it hasn't been tested for a long time. So how can we? How are we going to know what are the long-term side effects? And kind of breaking that stigma and saying, well, it's been tested for five years, over five years, and right now there hasn't been any major side effects that are risky, N- nothing that you know people can think about that can make be harmful. Um, also, we talk about substance use. There's only 70% when it's substance use. When I asked about substance use, because I was curious about it, I heard about it, and then I did some study. I'm like, hey, it, it, it does say it's only 70% for substance use. When I asked, there isn't a really clear qu- answer for it, but what I was told is because of the... They're not as committed to the medication as somebody who is out there um, doing uh, having sexes um, because of the substance use. They're more interested in the substance than what they are in their health. Uh, Dr. Lorenzen, uh, you're on the phone with us again. Uh, you are the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities, lead author on a recent paper about racial disparities in HIV. Uh, can you respond to what Giovanni has been saying about some of uh, the barriers he sees out in the community? And um, you have recommendations of, of how health care professionals can combat some of these challenges? Well, yes. Well, thanks. First of all, Giovanni, thank you for all the work that you've done uh, and you're doing in this area. It's uh, it's it's really uh, noble work, and so I I want to just personally thank you for the for your efforts that you've that you've done and your you know and your real dedication to um, to, to 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 fighting uh, uh, this disease. 
Um, well, what we've talked about is the fact that, uh, at least in our paper, we talked about the fact that we have to, um, one, have an all-hands-on-deck type of attitude in terms of working to combat the disease. You know, we, we have an opportunity to, um, to uh, really address HIV and to end the epidemic in the next uh, 20 years. And there are goals to try to um, end the HIV epidemic by 2030. Um, and it's the key thing is that um, that treatment is is there won't be an, a uh, we don't believe there'll be a, uh, a a vaccine anytime soon, but we there is a belief now that treatment uh, between uh, the treatment can be the prevention, and that by adequate treatment and by um, with um, uh, that that one can one may be able to 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 really address the disease, and that's one of the key points I want to. I want to make in terms of uh, moving forward. The other, the other key point is that while I quoted some of the data in terms of the general data, one in seven people don't know their status. Uh, if we look at the black uh, and brown community in this age range between 13 and 24, those numbers um, um, are dramatic in terms of uh, there are lower numbers of individuals who would know their know their status, lower numbers of individuals who. Um, who actually who are uh, who uh, who are HIV positive who are under adequate treatment? Some studies place the percentage in the 50s in the 50s in terms of knowing their status, and in the high 20s in terms of being adequately uh, adequate treatment. So we really have to emphasize knowing status and adequate treatment. CDC has recommendations that uh, that uh, that all individuals from age 13 on should uh, at least have one HIV test and know their status. And of course, if you're in a at-risk uh, group, that you that 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 you have at least yearly um, HIV uh, HIV tests, and I think it's very important to emphasize that that, that, that that's something that that we have to um, that, that 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 needs to be done. From there, um, we have to. I think that we need to do some of the things that uh, Giovanni is doing, uh, really advocating and speaking out and calling attention to the epidemic when, whenever possible, and to uh, and to uh, go to the communities, uh, uh, the black and brown communities, and really uh, and really talk about the disease and make sure everyone's uh, uh, tested. Knowledge is important, just as uh, Giovanni said, uh, really um, making sure people are as knowledgeable as possible about the disease and understanding the approaches to treatment um, uh, that are there. Uh, the key is also to be non-judgmental in terms of, as a population, we as a black and brown population, we have to be in terms of uh, in, in terms of uh, moving forward, um, and we have to be proactive in terms of typing, thinking about new solutions and new methodologies to be able to uh, move forward. And we have to really advocate for new technologies and new treatments to take place uh, for uh, for HIV. We have to really, you know, we, we're we're there are discussions about you know about budget cuts in terms of uh, for HIV research and HIV funding for advocacy work. Uh, we have to be out there and av- and make sure that we are uh, you know really proactive in talking about the need for addressing the epidemic in a in a big way. This is where we live today. We're talking about racial disparities in HIV. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted uh, to go back to Giovanni Roland, caseworker for Community Renewal Team, or CRT, in Hartford. We heard Dr. Lorenzen uh, mention, um, you know, budget cuts. And I'm curious, when we look at a nonprofit here in the state of Connecticut, when we look at uh, the state often uh, cutting uh, assistance to uh, many groups that are doing the work that 
you're doing mm-hmm. uh, in the community. How has that impacted prevention efforts for you? For us uh, directly, I don't think it has impact at all. Um, it's it's concerning though, knowing that maybe tomorrow we could be impacted because we love the work that we do and we're so invested in this. I mean, as an LGBT person myself, I'm so invested in in educating my community. As a Latino, I'm invested in, in educating my community. As a person, a Latino of color, I'm invested in in educating everybody as I can. Um, and this is not just a Monday through Friday work. This is every day, every single hour on your social media, on apps, on the streets, uh, with your mom, with your dad, with your cousins. Um, this is something that we love and this is something that we talk about daily. It's like what we breathe. So knowing that tomorrow there could be an impact in our work, it's concerning. But at the moment, I don't think we have been impacted. We talked a little bit about PrEP earlier. Um, How expensive is this? And how do uh, people who um, um, learn about it and are interested in taking it as a a preventative effort to keep them from getting HIV, um, how do they access it? So there's different ways. Uh, PrEP is very expensive. I don't know the exact cost of it. Um, I do know it's very expensive on on a monthly basis. Um, So, But there's different ways of, of getting this medication. So state insurance pays for it. And then if you have private insurance that it doesn't pay for or doesn't cover the entire cost of the medication, the pharmaceutical company has a um, copay assistance program where they give you a card and every time you go to the pharmacy, you can utilize it as a copay of the medication. So whatever your, your private insurance doesn't cover, that copay assistance program will cover. And um, it was $4,800 um, for an entire year. I just got an email, I want to say last week, that they increased it to 72000 um, so now it's even higher amount, which gives you more opportunity to access the medication for the full year. And this is every year you get the program. I wanted to uh, go back to Dr. Lorenzen. Um, you and your team point out, uh, when we look at this trend again uh, of uh, racial disparities in HIV, especially among African-American men, there's a lot riding on the fact that more uh, prevention efforts and treatment uh, needs to happen because uh, if the trend continues, uh, tell us how dire it could be. I understand one in two black men uh, who engage in uh, sexual contact with men will receive an HIV diagnosis in their lifetime. Yes, the 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 numbers can, are staggering uh, um, in the you know, already high in the black community, but staggering in terms of the you know, the black men who have sex with men uh, uh, segment of our community, uh, where um, it's where it's projected that one in two, if things do not change, one in two uh, black men who have sex with men will will receive a diagnosis of HIV positivity in their in their lifetime, and we're seeing in some of the states. Uh, in the South, you know, where uh, HIV has a greater amount of uh, uh, prevalence, um, that uh, that some states are already nearing that right now. So uh, again, we are we are in this in this period of time in which um, we um, we have some of the tools now that can we believe that can that uh, can address the disease in terms of uh, in terms of treatment. Uh, but we're also at this point where at a bit of a tipping point where we're seeing uh, there's a potential in terms of these in terms of very very high rates uh, taking place. So um, uh, so it's really a, a, a time of uh, of real urgency that that has to take place now. 
And in your list of recommendations, uh, when we look at uh, systemic racism uh, in so many uh, institutions uh, in our country, uh, what could m uh, be done more within the, the health community to get the right information uh, to communities of color? Well, I think that the uh, I think it's a very obviously it's a uh, it you know the racial discrimination plays a, a an important uh, an important role. Um, uh, um, we know that that uh, that uh, individuals low living on low income minority neighborhoods are significantly less likely to receive um, early HIV testing and treatment. Um, and uh, we talked about the fact that this that this leads to a augmented what we call a community viral load, uh, which is it can increase the progression of uh, to HIV to HIV and also increase the progression to AIDS in these uh, in these uh, communities. And so um, we we uh, we have to combat that with education. We have to combat that with access. And uh, again, access is uh, in terms of to services is you know, is so uh, so, cru so crucial, especially with you know, if, it's, if someone has an HIV diagnosis or someone wants is going to you know, proceed with um, uh, having pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, that means doctors vi doctors visits, and uh, and uh, and that means to have them, it means to have access to physicians, and in a local income environment, that means that uh, there has to be. There has to, there has to be you know, programs to be in place to make sure that um, that individuals are able to have access to physicians and medication uh, to be able to uh, combat the disease. Again, uh, speaking with us by phone, Dr. Cato Lorenzen, uh, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities, lead author on a recent paper about racial disparities in HIV. And Giovanni Rolan is here, caseworker for Community Renewal Team, or CRT, in Hartford. Uh, Giovanni, uh, before we end the segment, I did want to ask, there's also a pilot program that CRT is uh, starting uh, where it's delivering uh, HIV medicine at home. Can you talk about that and why that's important? Correct. Um, so first, let me clarify. I said seventy-two thousand on copay. It's seventy-two hundred. <laughs> um, it's not seventy-two thousand. And then for the pharmacy, CRT has now a pharmacy who is specifically for HIV-positive individuals who have private insurance or no insurance at all. Um, what they do is, what we do is, we deliver the medication straight to the client's door. Um, we are partnered with a pharmacy out of New York that comes from New York, and um, so our clients come into our office. They must have private insurance, be a resident of Connecticut, and HIV positive. They come into our office. They do an enrollment form, which is just one page, and they get their medication straight to their door, completely free of charge. So if the client was paying a copay at their regular pharmacy, with our pharmacy, they will not pay no copay at all for all of their medications. This is not just for the HIV medications. This is for every single one of their medications. And why I think it's important is because it's, allevi it's alleviating a little bit of the cost from the client's pocket. I mean, if I have to go to the pharmacy and pay uh, $50 of copay or $20 of copay to get my medication, my HIV and non-HIV medications, and someone is telling me that there's this pharmacy that for free, they will give me my medication and straight to my door, I'm definitely going to utilize it. <laughs> And then final thoughts, uh, Dr. Lorenzen, uh, we talked about um, your research and recommendations, uh, but moving forward, we've seen in this country in recent years how uh, the focus on the opioid epidemic is starting to really uh, uh, cause change in policy around the country. That's not something that we're, that we're seeing uh, just yet when it, we're talking about uh, HIV infection rates among communities of color? 
Well, it's exactly right. We 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 first of all, the opioid epidemic is is uh, is uh, is something extremely important to combat, and it's uh, and I think that there are appropriate steps being taken. But it's also important to understand that that this epidemic that we have in America with um, with uh, with HIV is extreme. We have over a million people living with HIV. Um, since the epidemic started, we have over 650,000 people who have who have died in America um, from HIV/AIDS. It's the, the population of Boston. Um, and so, um, while we, uh, when we look at uh, the opioid epidemic and the steps being taken, we should we we should really make sure that we are uh, doing the right thing and 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 working just as hard uh, to address the um, the HIV AIDS epidemic in America and um, and uh, utilize the same tools and the same resources. Uh, and the same action should be taken to, to address uh, HIV-AIDS. Dr. Cato Lorenzen, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also, Giovanni Roland, caseworker for Community Renewal Team in Hartford. Thank you, Giovanni. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about this issue in our communities, a reporting by the Connecticut Mirror, uh, by Mackenzie Rigg and Jake Kara, part of a collaborative series between the Connecticut Mirror, Connecticut Public Radio, and the New England News Collaborative. More on our website at WNPR.org. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there was a rare find at the site of a bridge construction project in Norwalk. An archaeologist joins us with the details. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tomorrow is primary day. Don't forget to vote. We're going to focus on uh, the primaries on our show tomorrow. We're going to have uh, Denise Merrill, Secretary of the State, in studio with us. We also want to hear about your voting experiences tomorrow. Uh, Join us on Where We Live Tuesday morning. Now, uh, we hear about construction projects happening uh, every day. They dig up a lot of dirt and rock. But what happens when those excavators and bulldozers uncover ancient artifacts? That's what happened at the Walk Bridge in Norwalk. It carries 100,000 train passengers a day. It's along the nation's busiest rail corridor. It needs to be replaced. So what happens to these artifacts found on site now? For more on the phone, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Sportman, senior archaeologist with Archaeological Archaeology and Historical Services, or AHS. She and her team study the archaeological site in Norwalk. Uh, Dr. Sportman, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. I'm thrilled to be here speaking on behalf of the team of archaeologists working together on this project. So uh, I know uh, I've seen different accounts. The, the DOT doesn't want to say exactly where this site is for, um, for good reason. But tell us what was found and a little bit about that time period where these artifacts are from. Sure. Um, we believe that the site that we've uncovered here is uh, early 17th century Native American fort or um, walled village. It was fortified with a wooden palisade. And we think that it was probably initially built and used specifically for trade, first with the Dutch and then possibly later with the English. Um, so we've recovered a few trade items, particularly beads and a knife that are distinctly Dutch. And the fortifications were probably there to protect the supply of furs, wampum, and food that the Native Americans were trading to the Europeans for, Europe, uh, for useful items. So we're talking about artifacts from the 17th century? Yes, the early 17th century. Uh, Now, uh, when I heard about this story uh, last week, I was surprised to hear that there were archaeologists uh, on site um, for a DOT project. Tell us when you got involved, you and your team, and is this common? 
It is, actually. Um, because of the laws that are in place at the state and federal level, um, those types of projects usually involve cultural resource component. And so for us, this has been a multi-year process. Our work started back in 2015 when we started with a sensitivity assessment of areas that might be impacted by the Walkbridge project. So we did background research um, to assess any areas that were going to be impacted by construction to see if they had the potential to contain archaeological sites. Um, and this area popped up um, because actually uh, in 19th century maps in a 1689 deed indicate that there had been a Native American fort in the area. But the question was in heavily developed downtown Norwalk, which has been industrialized since the mid-19th century, could anything possibly remain? So when we're talking about uh, the Native people uh, back then, not necessarily the tribes that are existing today in Connecticut. Right, that's true. Um, a lot of the Native people in Connecticut dispersed um, throughout the 17th century um, after the English really arrived and settled in for good mm -hmm. um, in the Pequot War. So very little is actually known about the Native people from the Norwalk area. They're not as well documented as some of the other groups in Connecticut. Um, and part of that is because they seem to have left the area in a large degree at about seven, or 1640, excuse me, when the English bought the land and really settled in. Uh, you mentioned beads earlier, but I understand there was also a lot of trash left behind uh, by uh, these uh, people uh, from the 17th century. Tell us about that. Yeah, we have, uh, um, I mean, generally archaeologists deal in trash. That's mostly what we're dealing with, the remains that people left behind. But we have fantastic preservation at this site that is really, um, in terms of artifacts and food remains, that has really given us the um, ability to shed light on a lot of questions about daily life in this Native American village. Um, we've got all kinds of food remains, including deer, bear, dog, raccoon, bobcats, skunk, um, all kinds of plant remains, charred maize, beans, um, berry seeds, and other plants, as well as a variety of fish and shellfish. Um, lots of tools, both metal, things that they're trading for the Europeans for, as well as tools that they were making out of stone in, in traditional manner. And um, there's also a tremendous amount of Native American pottery that probably would have been made by the women who lived in the village. Um, that can help us to understand who these people were and who they were more closely related to because pottery tended to be decorated in very culturally specific ways. Mm -hmm. So what happens now, uh, Sarah, in terms of uh, this is a very important find. You just mentioned that there's not a lot of, that's known about um, these particular Native people that lived at this time uh, in Norwalk. And I'm just curious, uh, when we look at um, different projects that have happened over the years, I understand uh, the Connecticut Magazine pointed out when fossils were discovered in Rocky Hill a long time ago um, during another construction project, the state decided to preserve that site. It's now a state park. But that can't happen at this particular location because of the fact it's on this, this busy rail corridor? Yeah, that's exactly what um, the case is. So um, the federal law is really set up to deal with situations like this. In a case when a highly significant site cannot be preserved, um, we move to, in archaeology, what's known as a data recovery, which is the excavation of the site, which, you know, removed professionally with all of the information carefully recorded, all of the artifacts collected, um, for future analysis, and then reporting will be done on that. But in that way, what matters most about the site, the information potential, the stories it can tell, are preserved forever. So we're basically, 
in this case, because the site cannot be avoided, we're preserving it through excavation and through the information that we will get from it and then disseminate to the public and to the academic community and whoever else is interested. Um, so you're still in the process of unearthing a lot of these artifacts. Where will they go? Um, the excavations are ongoing. Um, technically, because the project is on state land, the artifacts are supposed to go to the state repository at UConn, but the city of Norwalk is very interested in um, having these materials for educational purposes and for display, so they are working on trying to arrange an agreement for those artifacts to actually go back to the city of Norwalk. Mm. Uh, this has created some buzz, I imagine, uh, not, again, uh, um, probably unusual for an a, a infrastructure project. Are you seeing uh, residents down there, people that are interested in, in, in showing up, and does that, uh, pro- does that cause challenges for you in your work? Um, people are very interested, and that's been fantastic. Um, they haven't actually been able to visit the site and show up because it is um, actually kind of in the middle of an active construction site, so restrict, um, access is restricted to the actual site area because of all the other activities that are going on. It would be a safety problem. Well, I want to thank again Dr. Sarah Sportman, senior archaeologist with Archaeology and Historical Services. She and her team study the archaeological site uh, found in Norwalk, again, along the the Walk Bridge uh, construction site. Thank you so much, Sarah. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, Special thanks to uh, Zandra Ellen and Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.